Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Thank you for downloading the Open Apple Podcast. This is episode number six for July 2011, and this is Ken Gaggy. And this is Mike McGinnis. Mike, how are you today? I'm doing well, Ken. How are you? Well, I have to say that I am impressed with the quality of your audio. You sound like you're practically in the same room with me. Well, maybe that's because I am, Ken. Oh my god! Hi, Mike. Hi, Ken. We've had other guests in the studio before, but this time I've come to your studio. And welcome to it. Thank you. As we discussed last month, there was an intended relocation of myself to Denver, and that has occurred, though not exactly as planned. I thought I'd be, you know, maybe seeing you once a month, Mike, for Open Apple for the rest of my life. And as it turns out, I'm going to be seeing quite a bit more of you than that for the next two months, and then rebound exactly to how we started off this show. We'll be using the same exact setup that we always have. Well, either way, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you, and I hope that you don't get too sick of me until Labor Day. Not at all. Well, I gotta say that the trip out here to Denver was just a cornucopia of Apple II goodness across this beautiful country. Why don't you tell me about it, Ken? Well, I thank you. I think I will, Mike. I started off by visiting Thomas Compter in western Massachusetts. He's been to Kansas Fest several times, though not quite as often since he moved from Oklahoma, then to Vermont, to Massachusetts. I have not met Thomas in person. He has come to K-Fest probably in one of the years that you missed. But he has a uh, spacious home with plenty of storage for all the Apple II goodness that he has collected throughout the decades. And he was looking to relinquish some of it, so I helpfully offered as much space as my little Prius could afford for him to fill with various products. He gave me ahead of time a catalog of what I could select. I forwarded to you, and you picked out all the stuff you wanted, mostly composed of literature and periodicals. Yeah, I plan to scan a lot of the magazines that he sent along. I think he may have supplied you with some of the items that you're missing to complete some of your collections, such as the National Applework Users Group Appleworks Forum. He did, yes. Uh, all the ones that I was missing are, are in the box, and uh, at some point I will get to scanning those. Fantastic. I didn't grab much that interested me, except maybe for a copy of Miss Pac-Man. But the rest of it I dropped off, along with some stuff of my own and of Bruce Rosenblum's, with Sean Fahey in Kansas City, who will be bringing it to Kansas Fest for Kansas Fest attendees to pick through. So all of this stuff will be part of uh, Sean's uh, annual garage sale. That's right. On this trip across the country, since it is about 33 hours from the heart of Massachusetts to the shadow of the Rockies, I wanted to have a co-pilot on that trip, and that person who graciously volunteered his 4th of July weekend was Andy Malloy, our silent partner and associate editor of Juice GS and schedule meister for Kansas Fest. And you guys didn't kill each other before you got here. No, we didn't. It was actually a really fun three-day drive. We had some welcome delays and detours on our trip. We got to see more of the country than we expected. We also had lunch with Max Jones, the founding editor of JuiceGS, and since I'm the current editor and Andy is the associate editor, it was cool for the three of us to get together and chat about how far that periodical has come and how much farther it has to go. That sounds like a very fruitful cross-country road trip. Yes, we had a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to doing the same, only backward, in the fall when I go back to Massachusetts. Great. I'm already thinking I'll take a different route that, instead of going through the middle of Kansas, will take me on a more northerly route through maybe Omaha and Lincoln, because I know historically Nebraska is one of the most represented states at Kansas Fest. Yeah, Nebraska is something of an anomaly with the, the amount of still current Apple II users. 
It's the land that time forgot. Apparently so. <laughs> Nebraska residents can send your hate mail to... <laughs> McGinnis at open-apple.net. <laughs> Ouch, hey, wait a minute. You know, one of the first things I did when I got here in Denver with your recommendation, Mike, was look up the Denver Apple Pie, which is the local Apple users group. And I went to their picnic today. And how was that? It was really cool. I showed up and it kind of reminded me of my first year at Kansas Fest where the attendees' ages could be described in multiples of my own. <laughs> but everybody was very warm and welcoming, especially Sheila, Alyssa, and I think there were a couple of Larrys who were all very warm. I went up to one person who had the classic rainbow Apple logo on her shirt, and I introduced myself. And she immediately said, well, gee, I always thought if I was going to meet you, it would be at Kansas Fest. <laughs> wow, so she already knew who you were. Which is a little terrifying. I mentioned how I wanted to bring my friend in the area who was otherwise occupied with some home construction. And she asked for your name, and I mentioned it. And she said, oh, yeah, I think I've heard of him, too. So your own reputation precedes you, Michael. We're stars. Yay! We're world famous in Denver. Yeah, apparently. There was another person who asked me how I know you, and I said, well, we actually go to this Apple II convention in Kansas City every July. And she said, oh, you mean K-Fest. So even K-Fest is well-known in this group. Now, did you mention our podcast? Well, I assume that if they know that much about us, then they must already be listening. So, in other words, no, you did not mention the podcast. No. You're fired. Mm. Since we're in the same studio this month, Mike, which is something we've never actually done before, we don't have a guest. It's just you and me. Just me and you. And I hope that isn't too dull for our listeners, but we like to try something a little different, and when we change up something as foundational as where we're recording, we like to not bring other variables into the mix. We will have other guests, but this month we just thought it'd be you and me. Normally we do introduce our guests by asking them, who are you, and what do you do with the Apple II? Since we don't have anybody to ask that question to this month, and we've already answered that question for ourselves, I thought I'd ask you, Mike, what is it that you do when you're not playing with the Apple II, either for your day job or just as another hobby? Well, for my day job, I work in an IT department for a large federal government agency. When I start talking about the details of that, most people's eyes start glazing over kind of the way yours are right now. Uh, so we'll just go... Brains. So we'll just go right ahead to my hobby, which currently is... Classic arcade gaming. Tell me more. Well, my favorite games are Galaga and Mappy, and I enjoy uh, a round of Miss Pac-Man now and then. And in fact, I'm currently shopping around trying to find a good Galaga arcade cabinet to purchase. And that has definitely been a learning experience for me, as far as the quality and what you get, whether or not you have a modified board. There's, there's this whole other set of stuff I have to learn that's similar to but different from the Apple II, and so I'm having a really good time mm -hmm. with that. Now, the one arcade in Worcester, Massachusetts, where I used to live, closed a couple years ago, and I went to their closing auction, hoping maybe I could get a good deal on a Galaga slash Miss Pac-Man machine. Most of the items ended up being purchased by people who were intending to make money off them by putting them in a public place where they could generate revenue. They weren't collectors like I would consider myself to be if I were to buy one. So if I may ask, how much are you looking to spend on your own personal arcade cabinet? I haven't set a specific amount, but I'd like to keep it, you know, under two thousand dollars or so. Most Galaga games that I've seen in good condition go from fifteen to seventeen hundred dollars. And you think you'll enjoy an arcade cabinet more than you would, say, one of the many ports to different consoles? Yeah, there's something about playing it on the arcade hardware as it was originally intended. I do have a an X arcade joystick and a MAME setup. That's a lot of fun, but I'm looking forward to getting a hold of a real machine and, and playing the game that way. Well, good luck with that. I look forward to coming over and playing yours at all hours of the night. Sure. Well, and 
what I plan to do is set the dip switches on the easy setting so I can set all the high scores. When you come over, I'm going to switch it over to the hard settings. Well, it's funny you should mention that. I have noticed that I play the Galaga machine at Rockhurst every year, and I, I do admirably, I think. But there was one time when I played Galaga at a pizzeria in Omaha, and I totally blew away any score I'd ever set by a mile. So I assumed that it wasn't that I had suddenly become an expert gamer. There must have been a difference in the settings between these two machines. Most games have a few dip switches that you can set on the arcade PCB that affect things like cheats and, and difficulty. Hmm. I consider myself something of a gamer as well. I have recently started playing Portal 2 on the Xbox. I used to be a actual, I guess you would call it a professional game critic or an electronic entertainment correspondent. I had a weekly column in my hometown's newspaper. Every Monday on page B1, there'd be a review of a new video game. I did that for six years, resulting in over 300 video game reviews. And that was really easy to get burnt out on because it meant every week I had to play a new game, which I know other people are... Oh, poor you. Exactly. Thank you. It was a fantastic job, and I got so many of the games that I wanted to play as uh, complimentary review copies, and I have no complaints about that. But imagine finding a game that you love and you want to dedicate 40 hours to a scene through to the end, and you can't because you have to keep moving and keep playing the next big thing. I could see that would that would become monotonous after a while. Yeah, a little bit. And to this day, I have PlayStation 2 games that are still in the shrink wrap, and I don't know if I'll ever play them. Right, or, or worse, being stuck with a crappy game that you have to play enough to be able to write a, a full review on. I usually set myself the limit of th a minimum of three hours for a non-RPG or six hours for an RPG. Nonetheless, there was one time when I reviewed an action game that I had played for three hours, and the developer of the game found my review on my website and sent me some what I would call harassing emails telling me that my opinion was wrong, and I don't understand how anybody as biased as he was could suggest such a thing. Uh, the joys of anonymous internet communication. Well, I mean, he he identified himself, and I don't know why he felt the need to pick on the little guy, but I had played the game, and he felt that I hadn't played it enough, and I've, I had just kept playing it. I would have found how awesome it was, but, you know, my response is, I don't say to myself, gee, I'm going to want to play a good video game in three hours. I better start now. Right, yeah. At some point, it becomes a slog. Right. Okay, so that, that pretty much covers my hobby. What about you, Ken? Well, besides the gaming, I when I stopped being a game critic, my evenings and weekends freed up immensely, and I dove into community theater, which had previously been an interest of mine. Over the course of seven years, I did about 28 shows, ranging from Cole Porter musicals to Agatha Christie murder mysteries and British farces, usually going toward musicals or comedies. However, since I have no formal education in acting, singing, or dancing, I truly am a triple threat. I enjoyed it while I could, but eventually I started grad school, and the courses were nights and weekends, so I gave that up about three or four years ago, and haven't gotten back into it yet. I'd like to. I had an audition a couple weeks ago, but I hadn't auditioned in years, and this was for a drama, which is my weakness, and I did terribly, and they meant to email me back and say... We have cast somebody else in the role of Hal. Unfortunately, they decided to write back and say that they've cast somebody else in the role of Ken. I'm apparently not even suited to play myself. Ouch. Yeah. Thanks for rubbing salt in that wound. <laughs> <sighs> Anything else? Well, yeah, I have a question for you. We don't have a guest on the show this month, but we did have a guest on the show last month, and he offered to send us some copies of the fruit of his hobby. Brian Weiser was the co-producer on the documentary Done the Impossible, which is a love song to his favorite sci-fi show, 
Joss Whedon's Firefly, which I'm a big fan of, but I haven't yet watched the documentary, just with all this other stuff that's been occupying my time this summer. What about you? Well, Brian actually did send me the uh, not only the, the DVD of Done the Impossible, but the, the CD soundtrack uh, as well. Oh, that was generous. Uh, it was very nice of Brian. Thank you. I appreciate you sending that along. I did sit and watch it, and and while I'm still of the opinion that Farscape is a much better science fiction show than Firefly, as, as any reasonable human being will understand... It was a fun show, and, and I certainly understand the, the passion of the brown coats for that show and, and the movie. Hmm. Now, you do realize that any comments you make about any sci-fi show, whether it be Firefly or Farscape or Balsar Galactica, as we did last month, will incite people to write in, not about any of the Apple II stuff that we're about to talk about over the next hour, but about the very heated debates that we will incur regarding science fiction. Well, of course, uh, but I'm okay with that because I'm right. And it also means that folks are listening. That's true. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. Now, last month we had uh, mentioned that a new retro computing group was starting up uh, in Seattle called the Seattle Retro Computing Society, and their inaugural meeting took place on June 25th at the Living Computer Museum in Seattle. Now, I didn't obviously make it to that event, and I don't think you did either, Ken. No, I was still in Massachusetts at the time. Earl Evans of the Retro Computing Roundtable stopped by there and did a nice little talk up of the show in their most recent podcast, so be sure to check that out. And there are now pictures available on the web of the event itself. The Commodore Computer Club apparently took a road trip over there, posted some nice photos. It looks like about maybe, I don't know, a dozen people showed up with all kinds of retro equipment at the Living Computer Museum, which I think is a Paul Allen Museum up in Seattle. Why, yes, I believe it is. This museum is about three miles south of the Space Needle in Seattle. I thought it actually was in the Space Needle, but that museum is a sci-fi museum, which I'd also want to visit. It seems like there are a lot of museums in the Seattle area for geeks to check out. It certainly does. This particular museum, I think, reflects Paul Allen's taste in computers. The existing exhibits are mostly mainframes and mini-computers. Looking through the pictures of this event, these are definitely much more dedicated to personal computers of the 80s. And there were quite a few of those at the Retro Computing Society's first meeting. They had at least an Apple IIc and also a replica Apple I, which I assume was the Vince Briel variety. I think it's pretty cool to have regional events like this. Everybody in the world, of course, should come to Kansas Fest this month, but for those who can't make it, having stuff in New Jersey like Vintage Computer Festival East or this new Retro Computing Society in Seattle, it's a great opportunity to build a community that isn't focused just on a hobby but also on a geography so that you can actually maintain those relationships perhaps in a more personal sense than the Apple II community allows, where we're mostly online year-round except at KFest. Absolutely, and in this case, it's even better because they've updated their website now to indicate that they're going to be doing this each and every month on the fourth Saturday of each month from 10.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. So this isn't simply a once-a-year, once-every-six-months thing. It's, it's going to be uh, on a fairly regular basis. Although, ironically, the next meeting is on July 23rd, which coincides with Kansas Fest. Oh, man, I hate it when that happens. It's a nice problem to have. The Computer History Museum has a Facebook page which you can like. And one of the things that they've been doing is a semi-regular What Am I post. Basically, they post a picture of a piece of vintage computing equipment and ask people to guess at what it is. 
And so they haven't featured any Apple II items yet, but if you want to play along, stop by Facebook and like their webpage, and it looks like they post one of these every couple of weeks. They also have a This Day in History feature, which they do on Facebook and Twitter. It's also available immediately on their own website if you're not on social media. Unfortunately, these daily updates about things that happen in the computer industry history is not supplied via a Google Calendar or an RSS feed or a daily email. You have to remember to go to the website every day, and there's no archive of what happened yesterday in history. You have to be on that page that day to see what their anniversary is, which today, the day that we're recording, happens to be the 25th anniversary of the release of the movie Tron, which is, of course, one of the greatest films of all time. Well... Don't debate me on this, Mike. <laughs> but still, I, I do wish that the Computer History Museum, they're obviously engaged with social media and their audience, I wish that they just made it just a little bit easier to access these great features that they offer. If you prefer your education of older computers a little bit more hands-on as opposed to just walking through a museum, there is a class being offered this fall at the San Jose State University in California. It is called the History of Computing, being offered by Professor Ron Mack, and it looks to be both a factual and functional education on the history of computers older than the Apple II. For example, they will be asking their undergraduate students to engage in such activities as restoring a historic hardware or software artifact, investigating past programming languages, collecting, analyzing, categorizing, and indexing original software documentation and artifacts. That sounds very interesting. That sounds a lot like what many of us in the retro computing hobby are doing already for fun. It would be great if we could get school credit for it. Absolutely. And another assignment will be to chronicle the early history and legacy of an early computer company, such as DEC, Xerox PARC, or CDC. So sign up today. And you can. You can sign up to take the course for no credit. You can audit the course. The class starts August 24th, and your last day to sign up is September 13th. I don't know what the fee is for non-students who want to take the course, but usually auditing is a pretty affordable alternative to actually enrolling. And speaking of archiving, we've mentioned Jason Scott earlier in the show, and in fact, I think we've mentioned him in almost every show we've done so far. He is ubiquitous. Yes, he is everywhere. Speaking of Jason Scott, he contacted me, I guess a month or two ago now, and told me that he was going to put my computist scans up on the Internet Archive. That project is now complete, so if you stop by there and download all the scans that I've made, if you'd rather not navigate my site, you can get them from the Internet Archive. As far as I know, that project started when I saw Jason at the Vintage Computer Festival in New Jersey two months ago. You weren't there, Mike, so I had all the Apple II users there sign a postcard for you, and the note that he wrote was, I think it's time to put the computers on the Internet Archive. He did, yes, and in fact, I have that postcard downstairs right now. And a month later, it was a reality. I thought it would take longer. Even though I know Jason is an archive.org employee, I thought it would take longer to coordinate this sort of transfer of material, but... He very quickly uploaded the files and then tweeted a request for people to input metadata into the archives so that it's available and searchable more readily. And I think that part of the project is probably still undergoing, but it's made great strides very quickly. Yeah, Jason is nothing if not a doer, and he, he went to work on this really, really quickly. Uh, and That was neat to see. I would have thought putting Computist on the archive.org site was just a matter of redundancy, that if your site should ever go down, it'll be available somewhere else and vice versa. But Jason blogged that the benefits are more extensive than that. I'm quoting his blog when I say, 
The issues are now protected under the auspices of a library and can be checked out by anyone who wants to head over there and read them online or download the original PDFs or anything else that might grab their fancy. It provides, along with Mike's original site, a non-profit registered library home dedicated to its preservation. And that's pretty darn cool. End quote. And that is pretty darn cool. I agree. Jason has also been adding some of his own work to the archive, which is easy for him to do since he's literally plugged into the infrastructure. It just goes into work and plugs in a drive and bam, it's on the internet archive. That must be nice. Yeah, it is, although I'd probably be downloading more than uploading. He has released some of the uncut footage that he produced when recording for the documentary Get Lamp, which is about text adventures in which debuted last summer. He obviously had to do a ton of editing to create the final documentary because his raw footage spilled over into hundreds of hours of audio and video, but there were some gems that he just didn't have room for or a place for in the DVD, and that footage can now be downloaded from the archive. And in fact, this is not the first time that he's done this. He did this also with his BBS documentary a few years ago, but he switched the way this footage has been released because it, he says that, that people didn't want the actual full unbroken interviews. He included his questions and, and his part of the conversation, which apparently came across as repetitive, and I guess people got bored with that. So he's just doing the, the interviewee's portion of the discussion this time. That's one of the things I've noticed about Jason Scott's productions is you almost never see or hear him. It's just the interviewees responding to questions that you never hear, but they're framed in such a sense that you always know what they're talking about. And I think that's a very clever technique. Jason is such a powerful, and some might even say overpowering personality, that for him to remove himself from the film entirely is, in, in this sense, probably a good thing. He is a fantastic personality and worthy probably of his own documentary, but he's not the subject of BBS or Get Lamp. And so to let these videos focus solely on the subjects of the documentary is a fantastic approach. Right. Yeah, I think he does a very good job of, of just staying out of the way and letting the subjects define the, the documentary. I can't imagine the challenge he must face, though, in editing all this stuff, because what if he asks a question... And the person responds in such a sense that you need to have the original question for it to make sense. I remember he uploaded one video that showed a guy just sitting there for about 20 seconds and finally saying, yes, that is not an answer that makes sense out of context. You're right. As a podcast editor and potentially as a burgeoning video editor for Computer World, I really envy the skill and experience that Jason has developed over the years. Well, he's definitely put many, many, many hours into perfecting his art. And he got a degree from it at Emerson, which is where I just got my master's degree, but they're in completely different fields, so that helps me not a lick. Excellent. Question for you, Ken. Which is faster, uh, the original IBM PC or the Apple II? Now, remember that the IBM PC ran at 8088 at nearly 5 megahertz, and the Apple II was running on uh, 6502 at 1 megahertz. I remember having this debate with my classmates when I was a kid, which is when these computers were still in production. I would tell them that the Apple II was faster because it executed more instructions per cycle, but I'm not really sure if that's true or even what it means and to what degree that even comes into play, because obviously if you put a 1 megahertz Apple II next to 5, 10, or 20 megahertz computer, eventually the number of megahertz is going to win out. Well, eventually, but the original IBM PC only ran at 4.77 megahertz. Okay, so given that specific comparison between the two, I guess... Probably the Apple II, actually? 
Well, you would be correct. There's a, a web page I came across at the oldschool.org. That's old school with a K instead of a CH, where the poster named Trickster goes through the technical details of why the 1 megahertz 6502 chip was faster than Intel's 8088 at 4.77 MHz. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this website and I see the routines that each CPU has to go through to execute a simple instruction. And it seems like the 8088 is really inefficient. I would agree. So why is it that so many more machines for so long used the less efficient 8088 when there was the more efficient 6502 available? As I believe, Steve Wozniak chose the 6502 also because it was affordable. So efficient and affordable, and yet the IBM PC won out. Why was that? The 6502 was more affordable on a single unit basis. If you're a large company buying chips and you've already got deals with Intel in place, you can probably buy the 8088 at a significant discount if you do it in volume. I see. And if you have an infrastructure that's already set up, build systems around Intel's previous chips like the 8080 and the 4040 chips, it's probably easier to continue your evolution along those lines and to switch over to a different technology. But if Apple eventually did make such transitions, not with the Apple II, but with the Macintosh, which has over time switched from the Motorola 68000 to the PowerPC to finally to the Intel chip, and it seems like Apple profited from that transition each time. Well, I think the final transition over to Intel from the PowerPC chip was just that PowerPC had sort of reached the upper limits of the architecture, sort of the way that 6502 had reached the, the end of its useful life by the time Apple started including the Motorola 68000 chips in the Macintosh. So what is the limit on the 6502, or what was the most advanced computer it was put into? I have no idea. Hmm. Sounds like a good research subject. It does. Well, one thing the 6502 is still good for is producing original music, as the folks at the Machine Project recently decided to explore. Jason Torchinsky, with help from Chris Kallmeyer, recently organized a meeting of Apple II owners and musicians in Los Angeles on June 25th of 2011, a Saturday. He invited anybody in the geographic region with an Apple II to come on down, and they would organize themselves into an orchestra and perform a concert based entirely off instruments that were Apple IIs. Now, did you actually watch this concert, Ken? I was busy the night that it aired. There was a live streaming video online if people want to watch and listen. I think that video is still available as a delayed tape, but I haven't even gotten around to watching that because I believe that they rehearsed and or performed for hours, and I wasn't sure if I should sit down and watch the whole thing or just jog through to the important parts or where those might be. What about you, Mike? Okay, well, I did watch this. The first hour is them setting up. It was a live feed, and they just recorded the whole thing. It's sort of interesting to watch because it's people just bringing in their computers and, and offering them to be used in this concert. Somebody brought in a Franklin Ace, for example, and they, it was fun watching them try to figure out what that was. The, the actual end result, the concert itself, I, I think was probably better in idea than execution. Because there was no real rehearsal for this. They just sort of started playing the, the music through the sequencer. And some of it was more successful than other bits. Were the people who brought the machines in also serving as the musicians? Uh, no, I don't think they were. I think they had sort of, there was a group of people who had agreed to come down and be musicians. And some of them brought their Apple IIs, but others were just people who were going to watch the concert who brought their machines down to be included in this. And Jason 
Trashinsky, who you mentioned, he sort of acted as the MC as well as the organizer of this. And, and he talked about why he chose to do this. And really, it was less about the Apple II. And it was just more about, let's find something that has absolutely no musical quality at all and try to make a concert out of it. And they chose the Apple II because of all the 8-bit computers in the 80s, the Apple II had the worst sound capabilities. And that's why it was picked for this concert. Is that true? The Apple II had the worst music of the 80s computers? I think so. Pretty much all of the other computers at the time had dedicated sound chips. You know, the Commodore 64 had the SID chip, whereas with the Apple II, you just had the little speaker that was activated by pinging it. Now, certainly that's not the case with the Apple II GS. Well, no. No, but they were going for 8-bit machines. Okay. Well, hopefully, even if they didn't get the first performance off the ground the way we hoped, it will have served as good rehearsal for their next show, which hasn't been reported in too many places. The details are still forthcoming, but Jason hopes to bring this sort of experience to Minneapolis later this month in July. Well, I hope they do broadcast it. I'd love to see it. Like I said, it was, it was a very interesting concept, and it would be neat to watch it evolve. It was also neat just the way they advertised the event. It came kind of last minute. I got an email from Jason just a few days before the show asking me to help him spread the word. But on their own website, they have a photo of a gentleman playing an Apple II that has been turned into a guitar. It's been colorized from its original black and white production in the early 80s, which was an advertisement for the ALF Music Card by ALF Products Incorporated, which I think was based right here in Denver, Colorado. I'm not sure. But but this was not uh, Photoshop? No, it was not Photoshopped. In fact, the gentleman in the photo, his name is Bill Fickus, and when I posted this same black and white advertisement to my Apple II blog last June, seven months later, he found my website and emailed me with the story behind this photo. Did he really? Yes. He said that he started work at ALF when he was a college student and worked there until 1995 when the place shut down. He says the guitarpole, which is what he calls the Apple guitar in the photo, was just a mock-up. Begin quote, we bought an electric guitar from a pawn shop and pulled off everything but the body. The apple itself was unharmed except for cutting holes in the case to mount the guitar parts. I put on my tightest jeans, my poofiest shirt, and mirrored shades that belonged to one of my bosses. <laughs> the guitar strap was from my own personal acoustic guitar. I got to stand under photographer's lights waving that thing around and screaming while pictures were taken. The point of the ad was to make fun of the outrageous claims of some of the competition. There's a bunch of quotes taken from them, followed by the tagline like, Sure, you've read their claims. Now listen to their music. The joke was that one of their claims was actually ours from another one of the ads. Well, that's very cool. Yeah, it's especially neat that somebody from 25 years ago or 30 years ago would just be searching around Google and would come across my little site. And not only that, but actually take the time to just unsolicitedly email me the true story. Oh, the power of the Internet. Yes, the internet is capable of a great many things, including chiptunes, which is what music group 8-Bit Weapon does. They're actually friends with Jason Turchinsky. They have created a variety of original songs using retro computers as their primary instruments. Another popular form of chiptune is to remake well-known songs into 8-Bit tunes as a popular video game publisher has recently announced they're going to do. Here is the group Loading Ready Run with the news. RPG Foundry, Square Enix, is releasing an album of popular songs from some of their better-known games demade into 8-bit chiptunes, seemingly ignorant of the fact that some of the music already was 8-bit. Dear Square Enix, we have this thing called the Internet. If you just wait a couple days, someone else will make chiptunes out of your songs. 
In fact, they probably already have. Loading Ready Run is a comedy troupe from Canada that has come to PAX and PAX East every year, a video game convention <laughs> held in Seattle and Boston, respectively. When they were in Boston a few months ago, and they were asked what their earliest favorite computer games were, Paul Saunders from the group said that he liked Hard Hat Mac on the Apple II. So I actually sent him a copy of Juice GS and I linked him to my Apple II Bits blog because they love their retro computing references on their weekly news show, Checkpoint, which is what that audio clip is taken from. And anytime that they do so, I'd be sure to link to it. So if you want to get some uh, news from the video game industry with a sarcastic spin, I definitely recommend LLR's weekly show, Checkpoint. I'm going to sign up right now. In other retro computing music news, if you want to call it that, I recently got a hold of a copy of Symphony No. 2 for dot matrix printers by a group called The User. Apparently there are a couple of French Canadians who got a hold of a bunch of dot matrix printers and turned them into a concert. This album actually came out almost 10 years ago, and it's been out of print for a while now, so I've been sort of searching around for it. And I'd wanted to get get it on CD simply because it was e that would have been easier to turn into MP3s and put on my uh, iPod. Well, sure. But uh, in fact, I got a copy of the LP instead, which is I'm kind of glad that I did because the LP cover is made in in the fashion of a five and a quarter inch floppy disk, including the the notch, uh, the the right protect notch, and the disk access hole at the bottom. And here's a sample of that. <laughs> They also have a video uh, of this concert being performed on YouTube if you want to watch and follow along or you don't want to buy the album. Actually, watching it's kind of uninteresting. It's it's just footage of the printer sitting there making noise. Do I understand correctly that that video was shot like 10 years ago? Yes. And now it's available on CD and LP? Well, the, the original album was put out on CD and LP, yes. Oh, but now the reprint that you got that's available as just an LP. Well, no, this is a this is a used LP that that I was able to to find through I think Disco GS or is it Discogs? Is that how it's pronounced? Doesn't ring a bell. Um, it's it's a, a music site where trade and buy and sell their used albums. So you could have bought a brand new CD, but instead you bought a used LP. Uh, well, the CD would have been used as well. As I said, this has been a print for a while now. Oh, I'm sorry. For some reason, I thought it'd come back into print. Oh, no. No. Um, and the CD is, I guess, harder to find than the LP, So, I, but it worked out well because I actually enjoyed the LP. And you did end up being able to convert to MP3 after all. I did, yeah. A friend of mine has one of those LP to MP3 recorder devices. You basically play the, the LP and it records directly into MP3 format through your USB port on your computer. Now, this reminds me of a group called Man or Astro Man, who in 2000 put out the album A Spectrum of Infinite Scale. That album included a song called A Simple Text File, and the only instrument that they used in that entire song was a single Image Writer 2. You said that this album that you purchased was published about 10 years ago. That's about the same time that Man or Astro Man did their album. So was there some sort of like a, a, a printer fetish going on around the turn of the millennium? It must have been, yeah. Uh, I'm not. I'm not familiar with the the image writer one, but I'll be. I'll be sure to check that out. Do you know which printers were used in the Symphony Number no. Two that you bought? I'm not exactly sure. All they say is that it's 15 dot matrix printers, and the computers used to control those printers. Someone posted on Reddit back on June 3rd a, a list of music construction set emulated mockingboard 
videos posted on YouTube. Um, there are 11 videos in all. It's Will Harvey's music construction set from 1984 playing a series of songs, uh, 11 songs actually. I've never used this program myself. It, it looks like a pretty simple and intuitive interface for creating music in a on an Apple II. And I'm sure that there are tons of YouTube videos of Apple II software being demonstrated. I thought this was neat because it was just uploaded last month, so it's kind of new. Somebody actually took the time to create an 11-video playlist and upload it. It's only 10 minutes long total. Each song is basically its own video. And it's all done on Gerard Parter's Virtual 2 for the Mac. These videos were uploaded to YouTube under the Creative Commons license, which is a new feature that YouTube offers. Users and viewers of these videos can remix them, download them, and reuse them in a variety of ways. And another YouTube user has decided to take advantage of that to the community's benefit. Matthew Pierce of the YouTube channel Matt's Macintosh, which is a regular video series about Macintosh computers, he has decided to upload a variety of stock footage of old and new Apple computers and license them under Creative Commons so that other people can download them, remix them, or just use them in whatever project they're working on, whether it's a documentary or a high school project or whatever. I haven't actually watched a whole lot of Matt's Macintosh stuff. Boo to me for doing that, because uh, the stuff that I've watched is really good, and he's got a reputation for putting out some really quality uh, videos about the Mac and the Apple II. So this is actually kind of kind of a neat thing for uh, anyone who's looking, I guess, to get into videos that, that feature or use Apple II footage. Right. He already uploaded a video of the Apple II last month, and the video itself is eight and a half minutes long, featuring a variety of perspectives and angles and different hardware that the Apple II uses. I think that's a great idea because I may want to put together a quick multimedia presentation for Kansas Fest, but I'm not going to have the hardware or the lighting or the other video equipment necessary to shoot something that really looks good. This way I can just grab 30 seconds from his stuff, put my own voiceover on it, and have something that looks pretty good in a very short amount of time as long as I offer the appropriate attribution to Matt Pierce. Yeah, that's very cool. I'm glad he did that. I was flipping through the channels the other day, uh, and I saw a commercial for uh, an upcoming episode of Titans on Steve Jobs. Now, I watched this video this morning, actually, and it's typical of the sort of biographical shows that appear on CNBC for, for the captains of in industry and, and business and that sort of thing. And there were there were some issues that I had with it, but nothing nothing too major. If you're a big fan of Steve Jobs... It's going to reinforce what you already think about the guy. And if you hate Steve Jobs, this isn't going to change your mind about it. Now, just to back up for a sec, I canceled my TV service about 12 years ago. So I'm not very familiar with most shows on nowadays. What's Titans? Titans is a series on the CNBC channel that features various prominent businessmen. Steve Jobs, obviously, is the most recent one. Uh, from CNBC's webpage on the Titans series, I'm reading here, it's moguls, mavericks, and empires. CNBC Titans profiles remarkable people who made careers turning the unthinkable into reality. Steve Jobs' episode was uh, number six, actually. They have Jack Welch of General Electric. Procter & Gamble is profiled. So these are people who have definitely made a huge impact, not only on, on their industries, but on life in general. So sort of like A&E's biography, but with a more financial spin to it. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's accurate. And how long was the episode you saw? It was an hour. Can the entire episode be found online? I don't think you can find it online. You can see a, a preview clip on CNBC's show. I know that St the Steve Jobs episode is the most recent show, so it's being 
played in heavy rotation on CNBC. Well, the last time I saw any video footage documenting the life and times of Steve Jobs was probably the Pirates of Silicon Valley, and I wouldn't mind seeing the actual Steve Jobs as opposed to Noah Wiley for a change. Yeah, I enjoyed Pirates of Silicon Valley, but uh, I think I think it's pretty clear that that was a Hollywood fictionalized version of of what happened. Sort of like the social network for Mark Zuckerberg. Exactly. But not all the pirates are in Silicon Valley. No, and in fact, uh, the Minneapolis, who is from Minnesota, hence Minneapolis, came across a Jason Scott blog entry from 2007 talking about a program called Beautiful Boot. Now, if you used an Apple II in the 80s and you had maybe copied some games from one of your friends, you probably saw Beautiful Boot. I won't go too into the details here, but it was a short little piece of code that was designed to, to boot almost immediately upon turning the computer on, um, and it would pre present you with a menu of games or whatever applications were on the disk. Minneapolis came across Jason's blog entry and wrote his own blog entry about what went into Beautiful Boot. And it's a, it's a very interesting read, and he kind of goes about... Go, and talks about his past as a teenager in the in the 80s and, and sort of gives the perspective of looking back now 30 years later. So Beautiful Boot is a program that Minneapolis wrote. It was like a launcher for the programs that were on the disc? Right, yeah. And instead of sitting there and, and having to, to wait several seconds to get to, to the DOS prompt or, or whatever menu was built into a standard DOS or ProDOS disc, Beautiful Boot came up almost immediately. Uh, it was really impressive. Why would you use Beautiful Boot instead of just putting the disc in and let it boot itself? Because it was faster? Because it was faster and it took up less space on the disc. If you had, uh, you remember you're working with 140K right. per side here, and if you're trying to put three or four games on there, you space was at a premium. Yeah, and, and the big selling point here was that, as he points out in his blog post, it was a very small footprint. It, the entire system, it had a graphics subsystem, it had sound, it had animation, it had, an, an, in fact, an entire font built into it, as well as a disk I.O. layer, and he did this all in 4K. But still, I, I imagine that once you're presented with the menu that Beautiful Boot gave you, and you selected one of the games on the disk, it still had to go through all the same loading sequences that you would have had to had you just let the disk boot on its own. Well, sure, but... I, I, I mean, it sounds, I, I've never seen Beautiful Boot, so that may be why I'm confused, but it seems like it's actually adding a step by loading itself first and then loading the game instead of just letting the game load. Well, you wouldn't use Beautiful Boot on a disc with just one game. Okay. It's a menuing system where you had five or six games, or three or four games that you wanted to, to choose from to boot. Okay. And no, those games... How would you normally access them without Beautiful Boot? You just it would just boot up on its own and well, right. you, its own menu. Yeah, this is this is a system for for pirated games. Okay, where you took you had taken a, a disc from say Electronic Arts Hardhat Mac or something. Hardhat Mac has its has an entire uh, operating system and it boots right to the game. Well, instead you've you've gone through with Computist or or some other way to deprotect it and turn the disc into a file. And so instead of booting to the game, you would type brun hardhat mac, and it would load the game up as a file. Oh, okay. Oh. Hmm. I didn't realize that that sort of modification was happening when games were deprotected back then. Well, I think at the time, uh, the idea was that you wanted to minimize the amount of space these things took on, on disk and on... Um, because if you were pirating the games, you would... Uh, the best way to do that was through BBSs. You got 140k discs. You've got you know 10 megabyte 
hard drives, you, space is at a premium. And so you would go through and, and remove all the unnecessary code, whatever, to, to completely minimize the final product as a file that you could easily transfer to other people. I get it. Regardless of the purpose for which the program was designed and used, it's still an impressive feat. Oh, absolutely. And Jason Scott's post from 2007 goes into pretty neat technical detail on how the whole thing worked. And Minneapolis persp uh, retrospective on it was uh, very interesting to read. And all 1,872 lines of code are available online as well. Apparently, it's been extensively commented and not by the original programmer. Somebody decompiled his work and loved it enough to trace through exactly what it's doing and when. Well, that's neat. So if you want to go in and play with it or modify it, it's available for you. Through a link on the website 8bitaficionado.com, I recently came across a list of Apple's 10 worst products ever, which is nothing unusual. People love to drag down the winner and remind people that not everything Apple touches is gold. And it's not. There are 10 items on here. The number one is the Apple TV. And there are also some surprises on here like iTunes. But well, what? You don't, you don't like iTunes? iTunes on, on Windows is a completely different experience than it is on Macintosh. I'll grant you that. Apple is very good at integrating their hardware and software. When they need to go outside that comfort zone, they don't succeed as well. Sure, yeah, and, and iTunes on Windows is an example of that. So I, I understand it being on that list. The only things on the list that we would consider retro would be the fourth worst product that Apple has ever designed, that being the Apple Lisa, which came out in 1983. And, of course, everybody's perennial favorite, or least favorite, the Apple III, came out in 1980, just three years after the original Apple II. Everything else on here is pretty much newer stuff, like the G4 Cube, which I still think is an impressive feat of design, even if it was slightly cracked, and the Hockey Puck Mouse, and the Apple Pippin. So, all stuff we've heard of before. It's still a fun little stroll down memory lane, though. Well, sure. You know, if you can't beat them, just point out their mistakes, I guess. We recently talked about the SmartPort virtual hard drive device on an episode, and at the time we said that we weren't sure whether this was ever going to be something that retro hobbyists could buy for themselves. Well, it looks like it will be available. There's now a website where you can take a look at the specs, and the guy that's making it also has a tentative pricing available now. There's, no, there's still no ship date yet, but there's a lot more information, so it looks like this is a few steps closer to becoming a real item that we can buy, and personally, I'm looking forward to, to getting one of these. Are you looking forward to this product more than you are the CFFA 3000, which Rich Dreyer may potentially be debuting at Kansas Fest later this month? I'm actually looking more forward to the CFFA 3000, just because I don't have a whole lot of experience with uh, the Apple IIc. I mean, I have a 2C Plus, but I never use it. The SmartPort drive is specifically for the 2C. I, I have several older CFFA cards, and I'm looking, to, looking forward to all of the new features that Rich is building into the 3000. Well, now, you mentioned that you don't have an Apple IIc, and neither do I, but on the SmartPort Virtual Hard Drives website, it says that it's been tested and proven to work with not just the Apple IIc, but also the Apple IIe and the Apple IIgs. You're right. I am. And you have at least one of each of those. I do, um, but as a SmartPort device, I, I don't see this as, as being any kind of useful replacement for something like a CFFA card or an internal hard drive just because the smart port is so much slower than internal mass media or SCSI devices. So that makes sense, I guess. I hadn't thought of it that way. This is the best product of its kind available for the Apple IIc, but when you put it into the 
larger arena of Apple IIe and IIgs products, there are better alternatives. I think so. I, you know, just because it's compatible with these other devices doesn't mean that you would necessarily want to use it as your as your main mass storage device on mm -hmm. those machines. I do <laughs> hope that Rich is selling the CFFA 3000 at Kansas Fest. I've been wanting some model of the CFFA for years, and I've pretty much been putting it off ever since he first announced the CFFA 3000. So in this case, he's his own worst competitor because I would have bought his product by now. But I always knew that there was a better one coming just around the corner. Sure. Unfortunately, I won't be buying anything at Kansas Fest or online anytime soon from either Henry Corbus's Reactive Micro or from Anthony Martino's Ultimate Apple because they have both gone on hiatus. These two gentlemen are independent vendors but close friends, including geographically, and they've recently collaborated on a new product, or rather a new company or business or entity or service. We don't exactly know, but they have announced that they need to dedicate themselves wholly to this new enterprise and are unable to fulfill orders placed in their Apple II stores for the time being. Yeah, I gotta say, um, uh, I'm looking forward to whatever it is that they're going to be doing. Maybe it's Apple II related, maybe not. I'm somewhat disappointed though because I was going to bring one of my Transwarp GS uh, cards to Kansas Fest to have Henry do his famous upgrade on. Which upgrade is that? Well, for a hundred bucks or so, he'll go through and, and replace several parts on your Transwarp GS and, and speed it up significantly. Hmm. I was not aware that service was one that he offered. Yep. Yeah, it's been a long time since Henry has not been at Kansas Fest. I think ever since he started coming, he's been there every year. There was one year that Anthony almost didn't come, and then he booked his flight probably the day before the show started and just said, I gotta get there. I can't not be there. So I'm, we're certainly going to miss them, but we'll make some runs to Jack in the Box in their memory. I'm not driving to St. Louis. <laughs> well, this is an, an Apple II news item that I have to share, but I think it might be of interest. The Commodore 64 computer has been internally redesigned. There is a new computer shipping which externally looks just like your old C64, but inside is actually a modern computer running Ubuntu Linux. Now, stuff like this has been done before in various directions. People have put an Apple II inside a Mac Mini, or maybe it was a Mac Mini inside a Disk II floppy drive. It's just a really neat melding of new and old technologies and design, because some of these old computers that we used to use 30 years ago they don't make anything that looks quite like that anymore. The colors, the shapes, and the curves. Some of us really want to have those aesthetics around still, but we want the functionality of a modern machine. This C64 replica, as some people are calling it, even though it technically isn't, is a pretty cool compromise. I suppose, but for $895, I think I'm going to give this one a miss. Well, that's the top-end model for the you know fastest CPU, the most RAM, etc. They do sell low-end models starting at 250 yeah, I, I don't know. Nothing about this is a Commodore 64. I mean, even the case, these aren't even the original cases or keys or, or anything like that. I, I guess it's neat if, if you're a Commodore hobbyist. For me, there's just not much appeal to it. How much would you pay for an Apple II computer like this? Say that had a modern Mac inside. Modern Macs, let's assume that those so, start at 1500 so How it, much more would you pay? It would have a modern Mac hardware that booted it in, into an Apple II emulator because that's what this is. This, this this is going to boot into a, a Commodore, they call it Commodore OS, once it's available, and it will boot into a Commodore emulator. I guess I just don't really 
see the point? Well, you can still use it as a modern computer. You can still run all your usual Linux stuff. Okay. Can't you? Yeah, you can. You can even use you can even use Windows Seven on it if you need to. Sure. So I mean, if you had a Mac inside an Apple II case, whether or not it actually booted into an Apple II emulator, you can always install Sheppy Sweet Sixteen on it. Right. How much would I pay for it? I wouldn't pay anything for it. I I go, wow, that that's kind of a neat hack, and, and move on. It's this there's, there's not this is not something that I would pay money for. Okay, so you're more about. The functionality of the computer as opposed to the, the aesthetic. Well, sure. I, I want the, if I, if I buy an Apple II, I want the actual Apple II hardware. Mm -hmm. I don't want something that was manufactured this year to look like an Apple II. I, okay, I get that. I have an Apple II on my desk at work, and a lot of people stop by to ask me about it. I don't boot it up too often, although I've always tell people if they want to spend their lunch break playing Oregon Trail, they're more than welcome to come by. I think, actually, now that you mention it, and now that I think about it, if I were to turn on that Apple II and they were to see OS X Lion, I think that would probably be a bit of a disappointment. I agree. Um, and, and we're starting to edge into to the territory here of, okay, well, at what point does it stop being an Apple II and stop becoming something else pretending to be an Apple II? Mm -hmm. We started to replace SCSI hard drives with CFFA cards, disk emulation. At some point, it... Where, are you a purist? Do you want it as a an Apple II that's nothing but original parts? You know, do you want it with replacement parts as long as it looks and acts like an Apple II? It's an Apple II. I don't know. Well, if I were to buy an Apple II case with a Mac inside, I wouldn't call it an Apple II. I'd call it a Macintosh that looks like an Apple II but doesn't act or function like one. So, like I said, it's really uh, Apple II superficially only, and I wouldn't even call it that. Right. You might have trouble getting that title on the box, too. And last but not least, we have a news item that is a follow-up to a previous news item. We talked about uh, Byte Magazine returning, and it's been officially announced that Byte Magazine will be available again on July 11th. And Gina Smith, who is heading up the whole project, uh, has said that all of the original popular Byte columnists from the 80s are going to be, going to be back. Uh, they're, they're back on board. Um, they're Jerry Pornell, and she'd mentioned several other uh, names. Now, are these former staff members coming back just to write like a, a guest column to say, welcome back to the new bite, I'm part of the old crew, and I, I bless this rechristening, or are they actually joined as permanent staff? As far as I understand it, these are permanent staff members. Wow, that's really cool that they're still around and that they're still interested. I, I can't wait to, to see what this final product looks like. I mean, I know if my job from 20 years ago came back and said, hey, we want to started fresh and we want you on board, I would say, you know, I never actually liked working at Blockbuster, so no thanks. <laughs> well, I don't think there's any danger of them coming back anytime soon. Old or new, it's still cool in Retro Views. We usually talk about hardware or software in this segment of Open Apple, but nowhere yet in this episode have we really spoken at length about Kansas Fest, and it's only 10 days away. So I thought this might be a good opportunity not just to look forward to Kansas Fest 2011, but also look back at all the Kansas Fest that Mike and I have been attending over the many years. Yeah, no, I haven't uh, been attending for all that long. My first K-Fest was in 2005, and I missed 2008. But you almost missed Kansas Fest 2010 as well. I did, due to car trouble. I usually drive out from Denver to, to Kansas City. Uh, it's about a nine-hour drive, and it beats 
an encounter with the, the TSA. Um, but last year I, I ran into some car trouble and ended up having to spend a night in Junction City, Kansas, having my car repaired. Uh, and as a result of that, I actually missed the keynote. But as I recall, the keynote speaker, Mark Simonson, went out of his way to introduce himself to you later. He did. Yeah, I was very impressed. I, I like Mark. He, in fact, mentioned uh, the interview that I'd done for Juice GS magazine with Bob Bishop. Apparently, he really enjoyed that uh, interview. This year, I'll, I'll get to ask Bob Bishop what he thinks of Mark Simonson. That's right, because Bob is our keynote speaker. And in fact, he is sticking around for a few days at Kansas Fest. Historically, our keynote speakers come and go because... They're very popular and busy people, and we're lucky that they can afford to give us even a single day of their time. Are you saying that Bob isn't popular and busy? Bob is popular and busy, and he also has the freedom to be generous with his time, so he will be spending several days with us. Excellent. So I'm taking advantage of that, and I have invited him onto a panel that I will be moderating. I moderated a panel at Kansas Fest last year that you were on, Mike, and it went over pretty well. I, at least I enjoyed it. I think you did, too. I did. I had a good time. Well, thank you. I'm glad you did. Mm -hmm. So this year we're having a panel that the topic of which was proposed by Steve Weirich, who was on our show two months ago. He was asking me, when was the golden age of the Apple II? It was in production for, say, 15 years. It rose and fell. It's been in use for almost 20 years since then. What constitutes the golden age and when was it? I thought that was a pretty interesting idea, and I knew I wanted to moderate a panel. I just didn't know what the topic would be, so I grabbed onto that one. I turned it around. I said, Steve, if I moderate this, will you be on it? He said, sure. I wanted to get a couple of different eras represented, so I also invited Jeff Weiss, who is a bit on the youngish side as far as Kansas Fest attendees go, and he accepted. And for the third panelist, I invited Bob Bishop, and he happily agreed as well. I'm really looking forward to seeing that panel. That sounds like a great time. And this year I'm bringing better audio recording equipment, so I hope not only will this be video recorded made available on Vimeo as last year, but the audio I hope to have cleaner and crisper for people to listen to, and that will also be extracted and made available separately as an Echoes of KFS podcast that you can listen to online. Great. You should have Jason Scott moderate it. Or, or participate. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Since he's apparently coming. That's right. I forgot about that. Our keynote speaker from two years ago is coming to Kansas Fest in a non-official capacity. He's just going to hang out for the week. And I'm really surprised. Jason Scott is in Australia, I think, right now. And he originally wasn't going to come to KFest because he thought KFest and Australia were both in June. But when I saw him at VCF, I clarified that calendar for him. And he immediately, well, almost immediately signed up. Wow. It'll be nice to see him again. Yeah, he gave a good keynote speech two years ago, and people were grilling him for stories well before and after that official time slot. I'm sure he'll be happy to spin some yarns this year as well. Yep, looking forward to that. Now, I think you said your first K-Fest was in 2005? That's right. It was the first year that it was at Rockers, so I missed the entire Avila experience. Avila was unique. I really liked the tunnels that ran under the campus because you could go right from your dormitory to the cafeteria without getting burnt to a crisp under the <laughs> Kansas City sun. That short hike from Corcoran Student Hall to the Massman Cafeteria at Rockhurst, it can be very debilitating. Yeah, it takes a lot out of you when it's 98 degrees outside and 100% humidity. We even have some K-Festers who drive across campus to make it. Yep. Although in general, Rockhurst does have Avila beat as far as heat goes because Rockhurst's air conditioning actually works. There was one year at Avila 
that the AC broke and everybody went to the movies, not because they wanted to see the movie. They just wanted to go somewhere that was cool. Well, yeah, the the air conditioning at uh, at Rockhurst is is certainly top notch, and, and in fact, somebody had mentioned on the K Fest list that it's entirely possible to freeze yourself out with uh, that air conditioning if you leave it on too long. Yeah, it's not a bad idea to bring an extra blanket. Right. And even though Avila's AC didn't work in the dorms, I actually liked the dorms themselves better because the floors were laid out in a square pattern with the common area in the middle, whereas at Rockhurst. It's the common room with two long corridors on opposite ends. At Avila, everybody was equidistant from the action. Whereas at Rockhurst, you can be at the very far end and have to hike all the way through your corridor to get to the common area. And then if you're going to the bathroom, possibly even farther beyond that. Do you have any specific memories of your first K-Fest that stand out? Nope. (laughs) This all went by in a blur, huh? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Kansas Fest 2005 for me was the first time that I was meeting a lot of the Apple II friends that I'd made online face-to-face. And so arriving there, it was sort of an intimidating experience. I didn't know what to expect. And, and everybody was very friendly and welcoming. I'd related the story about uh, Ryan Tsunaga coming up and talking to me in a previous podcast. Um, and so that that made a big impression on me. And it was also a big motivator for me to come back next year. Yeah, it was thanks to Ryan that I attended my first K-Fest ever, where I got to meet him and Eric Shepard and Max Jones and Joe Cohn and Cindy Adams and so many other people that I'd met online because I'd been on CompuServe and Genie and Delphi probably since around 1992. So when I showed up to my first KFS at 98, everybody knew the name Kenny Gagney, but they had never met the person. And it was a little intimidating because I was only 19 at the time and I try not to think too much about those eras and all the embarrassing things I may have said and done. And I wrote about this in Juice GS once where... Everybody had their room doors just wide open so you can wander in and out and meet people and look at their hardware and software. There was one room that was open. There was a gentleman sitting there by himself. So I just walked right in without knocking and said, hi, I'm Ken Gagney. And he said, well, hey, Ken, I'm Max Jones. I was blown away. Here's the editor of the newsletter that I was subscribing to. And I just introduced myself to him as if he was a nobody. And I was just floored at how friendly he was. And he ended up using my Macintosh a couple years later for a demonstration of a piece of gaming software that that had just come out called Silvern Castle. And then he went home from Kansas Fest and said, Ken, since I used your Mac to demonstrate it and you you already have it installed now, do you want to review it for JuiceGS since I know you write game reviews up there in Massachusetts? I said, sure. And that was how I got into JuiceGS as just a, a game critic, which is something I was already familiar with. And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, in fact, that was sort of how I got involved with uh, JuiceGS as well. Uh, you have given your presentation on, uh, you know, how things work at JuiceGS and, and the future and what you what you're planning to do in the upcoming year of, of issues. And, and you had also put out a call for anyone who wanted to write. And I approached you and said, well, what would you want me to write about? And we sat down and talked about some ideas through email. And, and the rest is, as you said, history. Yeah, for me, Kansas Fest is something of a scouting opportunity for Juice GS because I'm always going home thinking about all the amazing sessions I've seen and wondering which ones would translate well to the written medium. I then consult with the existing Juice GS staff, which happily now includes you, and ask which ones they think would translate well. And then I reach out to those other attendees who usually are not Juice GS staff writers 
and we start talking about how they want to write it up. Sometimes it's a straight translation, so people who are at Kansas Fest don't get too much that's new. Sometimes it's a spin-off. Like Melissa Barron last year, she gave a presentation on her Oregon Trail hack. This most recent issue of Juice GS, she went into a little bit more technical detail as to her motivation and her technique, and she paired with Martin Hay to produce a program which can actually apply that patch to a original copy of Oregon Trail. So that is a whole bundle of new and old that all originated from just this one session that this first time Kansas Fest attendee gave. I think obviously the the late nights and the, and the runs to to the uh, restaurants at, at 3 a.m. are a lot of fun, but I, I really look forward to seeing some of the sessions and the, the ideas that that people have and and what they're kind of what they're working on on the Apple II on the Apple II it always impresses me. I won't name names, but I know at least two Kansas Fest 2011 attendees are actually arriving in Kansas City a couple days early so that they can distance themselves from their distractions at home sooner and get focused earlier on their Apple II projects. Because as Eric Shepard once said, if you don't show up to Kansas Fest, you suck. I recently misattributed that quote to Ryan Suinaga, and he's the one that I think popularized it because he's the one who wanted to show up every year not sucking but it was actually Sheppy who put out that call and these two programmers do not want to suck at Kansas Fest 2011 so they're going to start as soon as they can right yeah I think the the one that Ryan said at least the one that he said to me was that there's not always going to be a Kansas Fest so you need to get here yeah that's what got me to show up in 98 right The projects that these two gentlemen are working on are not Hackfest projects because those actually need to be done while at Kansas Fest. One of my favorite memories of Kansas Fest was Hackfest 2000, 11 years ago. It was my third Hackfest and third Kansas Fest. I had entered every year at that point. One of the judges was Max Jones, again, and I wanted to play to the judges, so I created a program I called Maxter. I demonstrated it to the public, and it appeared to be a functioning Napster clone, because this was back when Napster was being used at college campuses across the country and possibly farther to illicitly download mp3s and I demonstrated this same functionality for the Apple II. You could download a variety of songs. Only a few of them actually were locatable on the Napster network so it seemed but you could download it and play the first five to ten seconds. You couldn't do more than that due to the RAM and processing limitations of the Apple II GS. A lot of people were seriously impressed which absolutely baffled me because it's one of the pitfalls, I guess, of this deadpan delivery I have to my sense of humor. I I think people know when I'm joking, and I thought that they could see that this was a complete fraud. This (laughs) this was not an MP3 (laughs) player for the Apple II. It's only 11 years later now that Vince Briel is creating such a product, and it's hardware-based. It's not a simple Spectrum script that I was able to do. I took Eric Shepard, one of the other judges, aside and just made sure he was aware of my duplicity before he awarded the winners. I came in second place, and one of the other attendees, I don't want to embarrass Greg Nelson, so I won't give his name, but he said, Ken, you were robbed. You totally deserve first place for that amazing project. (laughs) And I I said, really? Okay, walk me through what you think my program does. And step by step, he he told me about how it connects to Marinetti and searches for songs and downloads them and plays them and I said okay yeah everything you just said it didn't do any of that it's like oh huh well that's still a really impressive feat because you had me fooled 
<laughs> Extra points for fooling them, I guess. I eventually did release that as a product that people could download and run for themselves. I have the source code around here somewhere. When I released it, I encrypted it so that people couldn't actually just look at the code and see that it was fake. Right. But it was really fun to write that because I was rooming with Jeff Weiss that year. He was also entering HackFest. We were sitting side by side in our rooms, hacking away, without knowing what the other person was doing, even though we were competing with each other. Every now and then I asked for his help with some Spectrum scripting. I didn't have Marinetti running on my Apple II, so he helped me get that up and running because I actually made a connection to the internet while I was demonstrating Maxter so that it looked like it actually was using that connection. But all it did was just sit there so that people thought I was actually going online. I actually have a Jeff Weiss story related to Hackfest as well. I love Jeff Weiss stories. Do tell me. <laughs> this was 2006, maybe 2007. Uh, I was just sort of kicking around the idea of maybe coming up with a sort of a very simple bejeweled clone for the Apple II. Oh, that I, I would play that. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I know Jeff's a, a very talented programmer, and I knew he would have some good ideas about that, so I went and talked to him about it. And I decided that given how rusty my programming skills were at the time, that it probably wasn't something I wanted to do for HackFest. So Jeff took it upon himself to go ahead and put together something, and by the end of the week he had a semi-functioning Bejeweled clone for Apple II. He handed me the disk and the source code with the understanding that I would finish that. And Jeff, I have not finished that. It's still sitting in my basement somewhere. I have no idea. So no, it's not going to be at Kansas Fest 2011 either. Sorry about that. Did Jeff keep a copy of that source code for himself? I don't know if he did or not. I, I think he just kind of handed everything to me in the hopes that I would, in the vain hope that I would finish it. Because if he did keep a copy, it's probably sitting wherever his Taipan source code is as well. Ouch. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. We talk about eBay a lot on this show, but I think we probably talk about it more than we actually use it. Do you have frequent eBay experiences, Mike? I actually use it quite a bit, largely because I find that it's the easiest way for me to get a hold of some of that hard-to-find equipment. Some of the prices out there are pretty outrageous, but if you spend some time looking and doing some searching, you can find still find some good deals. 10 or 15 years ago, I could walk into a thrift store anywhere around Denver and walk out with an armload of Apple II equipment for 10 or $15, and that's just not the case anymore, and I don't know if it's because people locally just don't have the equipment anymore, or I, I think it's more likely that they've realized that this stuff has value and they can make some money uh, selling it on eBay. I, I do have a couple of Craigslist alerts set up, but those never seem to pan out, simply because there are people that are faster than me, and by the time I call the guy, the stuff's already gone. When you're on eBay, are you searching for specific items, or are you just browsing to see what's available that day? Usually, uh, these days, I, I just kind of browse around. I, I've been collecting Apple II stuff long enough now that I, I have most of the stuff that the hard-to-find items that, that I really, really wanted. And so now it's kind of, uh, hey, let's see what's out there, and, and maybe I'll find something good today. Uh, what about you, Ken? I'm a surgical strike shopper. When I go on eBay or Craigslist, I'm looking for specific things, and if they don't have it, I stop looking. There are a few exceptions. I recently saw a copy of AppleWorks 4 listed on eBay. That's because somebody had asked me where to get AppleWorks, and I wanted to recommend him to eBay, and previously I'd seen them going for sale for 100 bucks. I saw a copy of AppleWorks 4, which is not the latest. The latest is 5.1. Despite not being the latest, these items usually still sell for up to 100 bucks, and this one was going for only $5, so I figured I should grab it while I could just to make it available to somebody else who didn't want to pay 100 bucks. That's a pretty good deal. 
Yeah, I thought even if I don't need it myself, somebody else might. I've also used eBay a couple times recently to sell some stuff. I sold a lot of 29 Forgotten Realms novels that I had bought over the years of like 1990 to 2002, which I'd never actually read, and I was moving recently, so I figured why move some books that I haven't ever read, and I suspect that my reading interests have changed since I was 16, so I got rid of those, as well as a couple of items of gaming paraphernalia. And I was pleased with eBay's option to donate your proceeds to a charity. You can choose one of thousands of charities, and you get a discounted listing on eBay if you donate at least $1 of your proceeds to that charity. Well, that's nice. I've never had much luck. Well, I don't know if it's much luck necessarily selling on eBay, but for me, it's just kind of a pain in the butt to have to you know, pack it up and drag it down to the post office and ship it. And it always amazes me when I see people who have these stores and they're moving hundreds of items a day. That's certainly a, a level of organization and dedication that I just don't have. Yeah, there are some people who sell stuff on eBay in such vast quantities that it almost seems like it'd be a full-time job for them. There's one gentleman on eBay with the username Wozniak with a C instead of a K. You're familiar with his sales, aren't you, Mike? I am. He seems to specialize in, in Lisa, Apple Lisa equipment. Very hard to find or very uh, complete uh, in, in great shape uh, Lisa 2 machines. If you browse through his stuff uh, for sale right now on eBay, he's got a lot of good stuff if you're a Lisa collector. And he does have a couple of Apple II items too, it looks like. One of them is a, an Apple II Euro Plus, which I believe is the, the European version of the Apple II Plus computer. And as far as I know, the only difference between this and the standard Apple II Plus that they sold here in the United States was the uh, the PAL encoder and the power supply. And that allowed the, uh, the 2 Plus to work with Europe's um, PAL video equipment as opposed to the NTSC stuff that you get here in the United States. It looks like this item is shipping from Maple Ridge, British Columbia, Canada. It will ship anywhere worldwide. It's $400, which is more than I would be inclined to spend on Apple II. But even though everything on eBay is rare, if this Apple II Euro Plus actually is rare, then it could be a unique addition to any Apple II collector's collection. Yeah, I uh, I don't see a lot of the Euro Plus computers show up on eBay, so uh, I don't know overall how rare it is, but it's certainly less common than the, the American version of the Apple II Plus. Now you said you have in your collection almost everything that you want. Is this included? No, this is not something that I really have any interest in, just because the only, like, like I said, the only difference is the power supply and the, the PAL video and I don't have any PAL video equipment to plug it into. Another prolific eBay seller is John Woodall, who also runs his own business over at VintageMicros.com. And I'm bringing him up because uh, the RCR guys had mentioned the uh, X-Profile hard drive emulator that he sells. It's not a cheap item. It, it retails for about $370, but it's a nice replacement for your aging profile. They had mentioned it as something that you could use with your Appalisa, and I just kind of wanted to point out that it also works really well, apparently, with with your Apple III. I don't have $370 laying around right now to buy one of these to test it out, but maybe if I save up. So the profile is an internal hard drive? Well, it's a, an external hard drive unit. Uh, it was the Apple's first hard drive, and it initially shipped with the, the Apple III, and after that failed, then they moved it over to the Lisa. And you could also buy it for the Apple IIe. It came in 5 and 10 megabyte versions. The only hard drives I ever had were with your standard Apple high-speed SCSI card or later a RAMFast card for the Apple II, and I got those from SciQuest via Quality Computers. I've heard of stuff like the Profile 
and the Vulcan, but I ha don't have any actual experience with them, so I always seem to confuse those. There was an internal hard drive. That was the Vulcan, I think? Yes. Uh, there may have been others, but that's the one that I remember. Okay. The profile actually came with a Seagate hard drive and then a bunch of um, circuitry inside the, the box. And those are kind of aging, and a lot of them have failed over time. So you can swap out this for your profile. Apparently, this actually fits inside the, um, the profile case, the external profile case. So it looks like you're still running the profile, but instead you've got this um, the hard drive emulator, which actually talks to a CF card. Is any version of the actual profile drive still commercially available that you know of? Oh, no, no, it's, it's been out of production for a long time. Um, they do occasionally show up on eBay. Sometimes they sell for $400, and sometimes they sell for $30. That's quite the range. It is. It, it's a buyer's market, I guess. Yeah. There's another hard drive that was out of print for a while and then came back. I think that's the one that Tony Diaz sells. Oh, the Focus Drive, yeah. That's also a compact flashcard reader, kind of like this emulator, right? Uh, I believe so. The X-Profile hard drive emulator is specifically designed to go into the profile case. This is not something that you could put in your Apple IIe and, and use as an internal drive. It expects the power supply and, and other internals that were specific to the profile case. So you still need an original profile to use this emulator? Yes, you would, you would at least need the case and the, and the power supply. Hmm. Well, that's certainly a niche market. Yeah, and that's probably why this thing sells for $370. One of the qualities that was unique to older hard drives with the SCSI interface was the need for a terminator at the end of the chain, because if you were stringing multiple SCSI drives to each other, you needed to tell the computer when the last one was, so you had to buy a terminator. I recently came across some that are for sale on eBay. It looks like it's a quantity of six, and you can get them for about 15 bucks each, plus another 5 bucks shipping. If you need a Terminator, I'd actually recommend that you go to Kansas Fest because I recently cleaned out my house and I found a box full of Apple II miscellaneous cables and parts. Bruce Rosenblum, creator of the desktop publishing program Publish It, did the same thing and donated all his cables to me. So I brought both of these to Sean Fahey, who's going to make them available at Kansas Fest. It's just a mishmash, like I said, of parts and pieces. But if you need a Terminator, I know that there are some in there, and they're so small and easy to grab that I'm not sure that they're really worth 20 or 25 bucks for one. Now, the specific auction that you're you're looking at here, Ken, is uh, for 50-pin devices, which would be more appropriate for Macintosh um, equipment, uh, because I believe most, or all, if not all, Apple II SCSI equipment is uh, SCSI 1, which would require a 25-pin connector. Oh, you're right. The only reason I brought this up is because I found it on eBay in the vintage Apple section being sold by MC Price Breakers, who we've mentioned before. They sell a ton of Apple II stuff. Mm -hmm. I just assumed, but you're right. Now that I look at it, this picture looks completely different from the terminals I'm used to using. Well, I think it, it would work just fine with your vintage Mac stuff. Well, we don't care about them. Oh, that's right. I think there's another podcast for that. There is? Well, all right. I don't think my box of Apple II parts is particularly attractive, though, compared to some of the other amazing wares that are going to be available at the Kansas Fest Vendor Fair, including from James Littlejohn. Yeah, it looks like uh, maybe he made enough money from the sale of this 18.75 megahertz Transward GS to get to Kansas Fest. At least I hope he did. This particular eBay auction he put up uh, is for one of the Transwarps that was accelerated by... Um, Henry Corbus of Reactive Micro, we talked about that a little bit earlier in the show when we mentioned that Henry wouldn't be there this year. 
Now, I, ha I have a Zip GS in my Apple II GS, and I think it runs around 10 megahertz, which for me is plenty zippy, no pun intended. But this transwarp goes up to almost twice that. It does, yeah. I believe this is the fastest that they've ever been able to to accelerate the transwarp GS. And it, it's definitely quite a jump in speed from the, the 2GS's original 2.8 megahertz. I think he had to buy it now on this for $750 in a reserve price, but the $600 met the reserve price. And given how fast this transwarp goes and how rare they are on eBay, the $600 price tag does not surprise me at all. Hey, I think that's a lot of money, but based on what I've heard, this is pretty typical for an accelerator for your Apple II. Yeah, that's about right. And he even included in the description for his item on eBay a link to Kansas Fest saying, help send a geek to summer camp. So this was his fundraising effort for next week's event. Excellent. I hope that he made enough to make it there. At $600, that should cover the registration and then some. I don't know if that'll cover the gas for the big green bus, though. Oh, boy, I hadn't thought of that. That thing, that that is a behemoth, and I'm so glad that he brings it because it's how Sean Fahey gets the contents of his storage garage to Kansas Fest. Yeah, but I imagine driving that thing up from the from the Deep South can't be inexpensive. Well, he's only from Chelsea, Oklahoma. According to Google Maps, that's just over 200 miles or about four hours of driving at regular speed. I don't know what that bus is capable of. Maybe he needs to work on overclocking his bus. Maybe so. And another Transwarp that uh, also showed up on eBay around the same time as James Littlejohn's is this Transwarp 2 card. This one's also closed, but and it sold for $450. The thing is, this is the Transwarp 2 for the Apple IIe, and it's the card that Applied Engineering was forced to stop selling after they got sued by Zip. So there, there are not very many of these out there. And what makes this one special is that they redesigned the Transwarp basically from the ground up. And it's DMA compatible, which is, is not true for any other Apple II 8-bit accelerator. Now, I know that Transwarp and Zip were competing products, but on what grounds did one sue the other? I don't have the specifics in front of me right now, but I believe that Zip felt that Applied Engineering had copied some of the technologies and put them into this Transwarp 2 card. And a court agreed with them, and uh, Applied Engineering had to pull it from the marketplace. So not very many of these sold, and they're, they're really hard to get your hands on. If this had been a regular Transwarp, do you think it would have sold for this much? You mean for the 8-bit? Yes. Uh, no, not at all. Those typically sell for you know, 50 to $75. Oh, I didn't realize that any accelerator sold for less than three digits. Oh, sure. Yeah, the original Transwarp 2E and a couple of the others um, are a lot more common and um, aren't as expensive. Hmm. Now, granted, this is on eBay where everything is inflated. But And finally, on eBay, I came across an Apple III with a profile drive. It's currently at $127.50. Uh, with a, There is a reserve price that has not been met yet. It's one of the cleaner Apple III's that I've seen for sale on eBay does come with a profile drive that appears to be working. The profile drive is loaded with a Catalyst uh, boot software and a bunch of other applications like VisiCalc and QuickFile. One thing I should mention about this auction is that uh, all of the software comes on the profile itself. You don't get any of the floppies, uh, so that's something to keep in mind. I, I think I do see a few floppies in the photos. Yeah, those are the system software and probably the Catalyst boot disk. Uh, the thing about the Apple III is that you can't you can't boot to anything other than a floppy disk in the internal floppy drive, so that's required for the, the profile to work. There's six days left as we're recording this, so check it out. What is it with you and the Apple III? I just love the underdog. <laughs> Isn't the Apple II underdog enough for you? No, it's not. 
How well do you know your Apple soundtrack? See if you can name the game. And now for the monthly Name the Game contest, wherein our listeners listen to an audio clip from a classic Apple II game and try to name the game from whence that tune comes. Last month's game sounded something a little bit like this. I purposely made that clip briefer than the others because I figured it had all the cues that you needed to recognize the game if you knew what the game was. Playing it longer wasn't going to help. I also purposely chose a non-commercial game. This was a shareware game because I think everything we'd done so far had been commercial and a lot of it was very classic and retro from the 80s and I wanted something a little bit newer. Perhaps those two factors played off each other a bit too well because we had only one correct guess this month. And do you know what that correct guess was, Mike? In fact, I don't. I'm not familiar with that game. That is a game that Paul Zaleski kicked your butt at at Kansas Fest, it being Dueltress. Oh, gosh. You remember that game. I do, and I actually had a great time losing. It's one of my favorite Tetris clones because it's highly competitive, very head-to-head. -head. It's split-screen, two players, and it has a variety of alterations to the classic Tetris formula, including different guns that can destroy or create blocks as needed. The one person who got it right was Alex Lee. Congratulations, Alex. And you win a $20 credit to the Retro Floppy Store, courtesy David Schmidt. You can use this for his products, which include a variety of cables necessary to run the program he has created, ADT Pro. Or you can use it for his service, in which he will convert discs to disc images for you using ADT Pro. Thank you, David. And congratulations, Alex. And now for this month's contest, the winner will win a set of three hard copy issues of the now-defunct print magazine, 300 Baud. All three issues will be included in the bundle that exists for this publication. All you have to do is name the game. that you can name the game then email name the game at open-apple.net all the rules are on our website so i won't bore you with them here i'm actually jealous of that prize because i only have the second issue in hard copy i wasn't aware of the existence of the magazine when the first one was in print and by the time i went back to the website they were already shut down ditto here i have the second issue in print and i actually i think i brought it to kansas fest last year and showed it off to everybody encouraging you, them to subscribe you did that's how i found out about it I didn't even know at the time that the very first issue that they published, they apparently had some empty space they needed to fill, so without even asking or telling me, they ran an advertisement for Juice GS. Wow. I thought that was very gracious of them, and I'm sorry that that graciousness was not rewarded with a continued print run. As far as I know, the third issue hasn't even come out in print yet. It's only available as a PDF. But the creators, Dale Goodfellow and Simon Williams, say that they will have the third issue in print by the time that we announce the winner for this month's Name the Game and that we will be able to award that winner with a limited edition of all three print issues. Great. Now, previously, I'd mentioned that we have a listener, Wade Clark, who has been entering every month, even though he's only eligible out of one every three or four months. His goal is to get every single name in the game correct. He emailed in a guest this month, and then he followed up with a detailed explanation of his methodology for how he came to make that guess. I was impressed by his extensiveness. Yeah, this is a, a very thorough and well-thought-out process that he uses. Yeah, let me share some of it with our listeners. He says, this is the first guess I'm making that is an actual guess. I don't know if it's right. My response to a sound upon first hearing it has fallen into one of three categories each time. I know the sound instantly. I know the sound within 10 seconds. 
or I don't know the sound. He says, the first time I didn't know the sound was with Out of This World, which we used a few months ago. I remember. So I used logic and the nature of the sound to get me in the ballpark, tried some 2GS games, and found it after going through maybe four to six games. This month's sound was another I don't know this. I had tons of logical ideas based on the nature of the sound and music, and I tried out approximately 17 games, probably two-thirds of them games I hadn't tried at length before, but I couldn't find the sound. For time and sanity reasons, I stopped trying at that point. In conclusion, my brain hurts. Mine kind of hurts too after all that. Well, I'm sorry to have put you through all that, Wade. I think you deserve an A for effort. I wish we had a prize just for that. Well, at least we got him playing games again. That's true, and that is a goal unto itself. Yes. Now, even though Wade Clark crashed and burned at guessing last month's game, he's not alone in that department. Blake Patterson has recently put together a video montage. Apparently, back in March, the website Boing Boing did a collection of deaths from classic arcade games. Blake Patterson followed up the very next day on March 26th with his own montage, that being of death solely from Apple II games. The reason that we're mentioning this now in March is because I somehow missed it back then. Blake just recently posted a link to this on Google+, and that's how I found out about it. Unfortunately, the original Boing Boing video has about a million hits. Blake's video has just shy of 300. So everybody listening to this show has to go listen to it about 25,000 times each. I'll get started right now. Ironically, though, Blake's video is set to the chiptune version of the song Final Countdown. Chiptune, of course, is the kind of music made with retro computers. The retro computer used to make this song a Commodore 64. Ooh. Traitor! But as long as we're on the subject for of arcade games, I don't mean to monopolize the conversation, but the annual Fun Spot tournament was held just last month. Fun Spot, of course, being the home of the American Classic Arcade Museum in Laconia, New Hampshire, which Open Apple Silent Partner Andy Malloy and I go to every year for our annual pilgrimage or sabbatical. This is an event that attracts classic arcade gamers from literally around the world to compete. They play games like Galaga and Arkanoid and Dig Dug and Frogger to get the highest scores ever. These scores are usually recorded by the website TwinGalaxies.com. The highest score at Fun Spot is usually acknowledged with a photograph of the scorer and his name posted onto a wall. But this arcade has over 200 machines and they're actually running out of room for all these photographs. So they have created an interactive wall and database which can recall at a moment's notice any particular game or player and people can request specific profiles and pull them up. Their website does not currently list any particular achievements that were accomplished at this tournament. But I've been to FunSpot on the occasion of the tournament before, and it's really a happening place. There are a lot of people there with video cameras set up to record their scores, because that's the only way to verify your achievements. It's just a fun place to be at any time of year, and especially when it's attracting some of the best gamers in the world. This year is extra special for me, because Galaga happens to be my favorite game, and it's also Galaga's 30th anniversary, um, and they celebrated that at the competition as well. I personally haven't been to FunSpot yet, but I intend to get there someday. Well, you know somebody who lives just a couple hours south of there, and you're always welcome to join me on my trip. I intend to. Excellent. I have some leftover tokens that you can have. Even better. But we don't have to wait until then to compete in our own tournament. There's actually going to be one right here in Denver next month. We also have a local tournament here at the 1UP Bar in downtown Denver. It's a monthly tournament held on the first Sunday of every month at 6 p.m. Uh, the next one is scheduled for August 7th, 2011. I don't know about you, Ken, but I intend to be there. Pinball is not my specialty. I think it's really cool, and I have a lot of fun playing it, even though I suck at it. 
we know this is the Apple II podcast, but this is a cool enough tangent to warrant mentioning. I'll go with you, Mike. And I don't know if I'm actually going to compete because competing usually involves practice. And I am not good, nor do I have any intention of getting good at games such as Family Guy, Terminator 2, or Rocky and Bullwinkle. Well, lucky for you, they also have 30 classic video games. So maybe while I'm playing pinball, you can try your hand at some of those. And now back to real news. Going back to another story that we talked about several months ago, Electronic Arts had been sending out cease and desist notices to websites that have been hosting copies of Ultima 4, and now we know why. Uh, they have released a free version of Ultima 4 available for download from the webpage. Uh, this is the PC-only version. You're still on your own to get a hold of a copy of uh, the Apple II version of Ultima 4. Have you downloaded this free version? I have not, no. I, I don't really have an interest in playing the PC version. I did download it, as well as DOSBox, which is a DOS emulator for a variety of platforms. I downloaded the Mac OS X version. Unfortunately, I've never actually owned a PC before, and when I was presented with the C prompt, I literally had no idea what to do. I didn't even know how to change directories. Maybe I need to find some sort of a simple DOS primer on how to accomplish basic functions so I can navigate to the ultimate directory and execute it. I'm sure those are all over the web. It's not nearly as hard as I'm making it out to be. <laughs> And given that it's Ultima 4, I'm sure it's worth the effort. Probably so. The rumor is that EA is doing this because they're going to be releasing a new Ultima game here shortly, and this is part of the build-up to that, so we will see. But Richard Garriott, the creator of the Ultima franchise, recently tweeted that nobody can create the true sequel to Ultima except him and his team. Hmm. Well, it's interesting that EA is trying to further this franchise without the person who gave it its soul. I wonder if this will be an Ultima in name only. I'm guessing so. I mean, it's not. It's really not Ultima without Lord British. Of course, if you want to go really retro with your RPGs, there's always Eamon for the Apple II. Eamon was never a series of text games that I played very much. Is that something that you did, Ken? I used it when I was in grade school, actually. I played it a little bit, but I also used their Dungeon Designer disc to create a text adventure version of the classic book, The Rats of Nim. And I passed it in as a school project. Unfortunately, the teachers really didn't know how to grade this because this was when computers were still emerging into popular culture and they had never seen anything like it. I did play a lot of Eamon and I did do a little programming, if you can call it that, in Eamon. Over on the Adrift forum, a username Ralph Meridu posted that he'd written some scripts to convert the Eamon PC files over to Inform 6 and Adrift 5, which are much more modern text development systems. We've talked about Inform on here before. Inform 7 is the latest, and it's much more English-readable. I'm looking at the code right now for the Beginner's Cave from Eamon, converting to Inform 6, and it's not nearly as understandable, but I guess it really doesn't matter what language it's written in as long as you're able to execute it as a typical Eamon file. I think that Inform 7 is interpreted back to Inform 6 anyway. Hmm. It's just a matter of which system you're comfortable developing, and my question is why someone would have done this. Well, Wade Clark, when he submitted Lead Light to the Interactive Fiction Competition last year, discovered that a lot of people were prejudiced against his project because it was awkward to execute. They were not used to running it in an Apple II. They just wanted to be able to play it in a modern-day computer, so they would get their retro gaming fix without jumping through any hoops and hurdles. I think these conversion scripts that Ralph Meridu is working on could potentially bring Eamon to a much larger audience that isn't familiar with an Apple II and doesn't want to be. I suppose, but these are Eamon PC files already, and if you get the, the disc from the Eamon Adventurers Guild, there's a there's an application on there that, that will allow you to play those games on a modern PC. 
That's true. I hadn't thought of that. There is Eamon PC. I interviewed its creator for a Juice.js story earlier this year. He, I believe, has a converter that changes Apple II Eamons to Eamon PC files. So you'd have to do that and then run these scripts. And also, I believe, if I understand Ralph's message correctly, the Perl scripts he wrote were, I think, specialized for the beginner's cave. He said that this is only a first step toward a full converter. So this is still not an easy way to just immediately convert the entire library of Eamon adventures to Inform 6 or Adrift 5. Yeah, and I, and I could see this being interesting, especially if you wanted to see the code behind the Eamon games. If you were a developer of interactive fiction, Eamon certainly has its following and was famous in its time. So there's, I could see the interest there, yeah. But a lot of Eamons did custom things. Their developers hacked Eamon to make it do things that were non-standard for an Eamon adventure. Wade Clark did a variety of those, including multiple save slots and multiple descriptions for objects. Mostly things that had been done before, according to Tom Zukowski, the former Eamon Archives guildmaster. Nonetheless, it means that there are a variety of non-standard Eamons out there that a formulaic converter probably wouldn't know how to handle, except on a specialized case-by-case -case basis, and that's just not likely to happen. Yeah, I'm guessing that would be very challenging and time-consuming. But as somebody who is regularly importing and exporting data from the Apple II or from different content management systems like WordPress, I can see the appeal of being able to convert data easily and make it all that much more easy to share or just necessarily to archive. Sure, and if nothing else, it's probably a good exercise in, in learning for a programmer. Whereas my memories of Eamon are what I would describe as vague, Lee Alexander has more vivid memories of exploring Colossal Cave. There is a recent article on the website Rock Paper Shotgun where she describes her experience growing up exploring the woods out back with her friend, and simultaneously, when it was too hot to be outside, they would go into her friend's father's basement and explore the world of adventure or Colossal Cave. It's just such a lovely piece that she's written, so abstract about the imagination that we have as children and how you really almost can't capture that. That things that don't make sense when you're a kid don't need to, like why a bent and star-crowned rod found in a cave should have teleportation powers. That's just, you know, if the game tells you that it is so, then it is so. And that's just a wonderful way to explore a game. She ends by saying that she even found her old friend on Facebook and chose not to send her a friend request, chose not to contact her at all, because this is no longer the person that she explored that world with, and in a way that world doesn't even exist anymore. There's no point in trying to pursue it as anything other than a memory. I think that Colossal Cave Adventures is one of those timeless classics, and that's why we keep coming back to it over and over again. Have you ever actually finished it, Mike? Uh, I've not finished it. I've, I've played it for many hours, and, and i found that because of the, the exploration system uh, that Will Crothers built into Colossal Cave Adventure, that I could just play for hours and let my imagination kind of go where it went as I went from location to location and not necessarily focus on finishing every task that was set out there. Yeah, that's what one of the subjects of Jason Scott's Get Lamp documentary talked about, how no matter how vivid the graphics get, no matter how visceral the experience becomes, there will never be so direct a line of communication to a person's imagination as there is with text. And I think that in a way, we have kind of lost something in the pursuit of reality in our interactive entertainment. Right. And, and this is probably going to sound, this may sound a little strange, but I kind of wish that Jason Scott hadn't included so many shots of the um, 
bed quilt cave system because I'd played through this game and in my head I have memories of, of what my imagination presented these rooms as and they didn't necessarily match what I was seeing in the Get Lamp documentary. I'm not not saying that, that he shouldn't have included that. I'm just saying... No, I understand. It's just like when you read the Harry Potter book and then you go see the first movie and that's not anything at all what you thought Ron, Harry, and Hermione would look like or act like. You're being asked to accept somebody else's interpretation, somebody else's imagination. Exactly. And finally, uh, Arcade Retro Gaming, the retro gaming experts, as they proclaim themselves on their website, have announced that their MCC216 standard classic computing platform now includes the Apple II core. Um, apparently, Alex Freed of AppleLogic.org, who was also responsible for the carte blanche card, uh, helped them implement this. Um, personally, I was not even aware that this was available, but you can buy it now from their website for $149.99. So what is this thing that you can buy for $149? It looks like it's a multi-machine emulator. Before the Apple II, it also emulated the Commodore 64 and the Atari 2600. So this is an actual console that you can plug into, say, a television? It looks like it, yes. And then in what way does it become an Apple II? I mean, does it... Do you plug a USB keyboard into it? It comes with uh, a USB slot, a micro SD card slot, uh, S-Video for improved video uh, output, and a couple of joystick ports. I'm aware of consoles that have slots that let you play, say, Nintendo, Super Nintendo, and Sega Genesis games. I wasn't aware that there were similar things out there for computers. And neither was I. This is new to me. This is the only other time I've seen what is essentially a new Apple II for sale other than the Tiger Learning Computer, and that was about 15 years ago. Right. I think this is based on uh, on FPGA technology, so that you can configure these machines however you want. Well, I guess it makes sense then that Alex would have had his hand in this since he's the creator of the carte blanche card. Absolutely. So would you call this a general Apple II product, or is it more aimed at gamers? I think it's specifically aimed at gamers. I mean, it comes with a bunch of public domain games for the Commodore 64 and the other platforms. Hmm. I like that they're actually doing the public domain route instead of installing all this stuff that they really shouldn't. I agree, yeah. Well, I'm not sure that I'll have the pennies to buy one anytime soon, but in the meantime, I think that that product brings us to the end of the Name the Game section, which is the last section on the Open Apple podcast, which means that we are now in the rundown to the closing sequence. Great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's been another long, long podcast, and we didn't even have a guest this time. Yeah, how do you think that our first episode ever with just the two of us went, Mike? Uh, well, I'll leave that up to the audience to decide. Well, I think I can see why the Retro Computing Roundtable has three hosts. I think there is more opportunity for spontaneity and banter when they have that many guests. Sure, I agree. But, you know, for a once-in-a-while thing, I don't think this is bad. No, not at all. And we rehearsed our first show before we did that, and I know that there is a significant improvement, and I think that if we have to do this again in the future, it will also get better. I think so. But we're not planning on it. We will have more guests in the future, and with Kansas Fest coming up, we're going to have some special episodes coming out online, but we will not be doing a live show at Kansas Fest, like Ryan and Carrington have done in the past. Well, Mike, usually we end by saying I'll see you in a month or talk to you in a month, but I'll be seeing a lot more of you than that in the run-up to Kansas Fest, and then every day thereafter, and then quite a bit thereafter as well, and then we'll be back to the old routine. I'm looking forward to it, Ken. <laughs> I'll take that as generously as I'm sure you intended it. Absolutely, yes. Great. We'll see you all at Kansas Fest.
If you can see it, come up and tell us that Open Apple Podcast rocks, and we'll give you nothing except a huge grin and maybe even a hug. And if you can't make it to Kansas Fest, email us at podcast at open-apple.net. We're always looking forward to hearing your feedback, suggestions, complaints, and concerns. We'll talk to you soon. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Are we recording? Yes. Uh, um, see. Oh, yeah, look at that. Fancy.